Hi, this is Tamara Mahoney, and this is the Open Energy Access Podcast from the NXS Foundation. This is a show where we focus on what's happening in the energy access sector in terms of development, innovation, success, and failure. This podcast was created for an audience of people who are already working or studying energy access. But I also think that anyone who is interested in innovation stories, startups, or development studies will find our topics pretty interesting. In this particular episode, we're talking about something a bit different. Normally, I interview people who have recently completed a project that was funded by NXS. This time around, I'm talking about a project that we just recently got started with, which is an open source oxygen concentrator. We call the project Open O2. This episode is going to appeal to those of you who are interested in learning how the entire open source community can come together to help create an essential piece of medical equipment that will work in low resource settings. The Open O2 project is really different than anything we've done in the past. We are currently working with multiple communities, individuals, companies, and with doctors. To explain the background of why we're doing this now, I'm going to be talking with Joel Cheney. He is the innovation program manager at NXS and also my colleague. He's leading this project, so it makes sense to get the story straight from him. I'm also going to be talking to Dr. Phil Bonnet, an anesthesiologist who has worked on the ground in a hospital in Zambia, which is in Africa. Before we jump into the conversation, let me give you some quick background. I work for the NXS Foundation, and I had the idea to produce this podcast because Generally speaking, talking about our common challenges, successes, and failures in an open and transparent way is something that we think should be much more public. The inspiration for the Open O2 project came because we wanted to do something relevant for the world that we're living in now, which is under a lot of stress due to the COVID-19 pandemic. NXS is uniquely positioned to help. We are experienced innovators, and we understand the challenges that are facing low resource settings, and underserved communities. So we decided to support the design and manufacturing of an open source oxygen concentrator for these underserved communities. We want to quickly get to a working design that can be locally built, locally repaired, and used in settings where we know that access to energy is an issue. So to get this project off the ground, we did something a bit different. We put out a specific call for entries on our website, and we asked for submissions related to building different key components of an oxygen concentrator. We had a number of proposals come in from individuals and companies that wanted to participate in different ways. And we selected the projects that seemed to be the key building blocks, those that would be useful across the board. Now we, and by we, I really mean my colleague, Joel, he is acting as the project manager for the Open O2 project. We'll let you know in a few months how it all went. Of course, we hope to be successful. But one of the reasons I wanted to record this podcast now is because the more people that know about this idea and the more people who might be able to contribute, the better chance we have at success. This is truly an open source project. We know that there may be others out there who are attempting this exact same idea. And the point is, we don't want to compete. We want to collaborate. So we want you to know what we're trying to do, and we also want to do whatever we can to make the process more efficient, which includes speaking very publicly about the idea while it's still in development. So let's get started. First, we're going to talk with Joel Cheney. I asked him to begin by introducing himself and then to give us a bit of background information 
about why the open source oxygen concentrator. Yeah, so my name's Joel. I live in Edinburgh in Scotland. What do I do? So at the moment, I'm working for the NAXFS Foundation, helping to manage innovation projects coming in and trying to catalyze a community around open source and energy access. Um, I love bringing people together to solve problems um, from engineers, designers, illustrators, um, lots of different skill sets to solve problems in the energy access sector. That's what I'm really passionate about. It's so a bit of the background story. No energy means no oxygen, essentially. If you haven't got access to energy, you haven't got access to oxygen. The existing oxygen concentrators were designed to run on AC power for places where they had reliable access um, to oxygen. And so this is the challenge. So the way, so the way we've gone about this project, so we've taken an oxygen concentrator and we've literally broken apart all of the core principles of it, all the, all of the parts of an oxygen concentrator, and tried to completely rethink from scratch how to design the system so that it is works well in an off-grid setting. So we've tried to to actually build a system which is completely mechanical, which doesn't rely on any electronics, and which uses commonplace parts that are available in supply chains around the world. So we've tried to make something which is robust, which is repairable, which is mechanical, and we've been doing the project for a couple of weeks now, um, and, and we have we have a prototype which is... Uh, not far off the mark. Good. So I'm pretty confident we're going to get there. You know, there's a lot of different things that the energy access community has done to help with COVID-19 in low resource settings. Sure. What was it about the open source oxygen concentrator that made so much sense for an access, in your opinion? I think I think it was that ox- oxygen is a very, very important medicine, very important um, for keeping people alive. And I think, I guess the COVID situation highlighted that. Why an oxygen concentrator? I think because um, having an oxygen oxygen concentrator that works well in off-grid settings could pave way for other efficient medical devices for off-grid settings. So, so I think it was kind of something that, that seemed achievable that could then pave way for other, other potential medical equipment or encourage others to take up that um, task of of how can we design other medical equipment that would work well in off-grid settings. I think perhaps also because with oxygen concentrators, they actually, um, existing designs use a considerable amount of power. Um, and so the amount of batteries that you need in order to run an oxygen concentrator overnight with no solar energy, for example, is considerable. There's huge, there's huge numbers of people living in off-grid rural places in, in low-resource settings, right? And the device manufacturers are focusing on... Um, the countries where they can make the most money. And and most of those countries have got grids. So people in, in very rural places are being excluded from access to um, so some vital equipment. And oxygen is just one of them, right? So, so if we can des- design an oxygen generation system that works really well in off-grid settings, then we're giving access to oxygen to, to many more people. And it's not just helpful, really, for COVID. I mean, something like this could could be helpful in so many other situations with people with so many other health sure. problems. Sure, it's good you highlight that because I think that was one of the underlying things that we um, were thinking about because we weren't doing this naively. We know that when you design a piece of medical equipment, it's going to have to be tested and you're going to need CE marks, you're going to need um, various other certifications. We realized that even if we design something that works wonderfully um, within a couple of months and could be deployed, we knew that in reality, it, it could take a lot longer to get that to a place where it would be considered safe and could be signed off as, as certified. 
and so then it was important that there was if we were designing something that was going to be useful it wasn't just going to be useful during this time period um that it could be useful in the long term and oxygen is something which people have been crying out for for a number of years there's been a number of there's a number of NGOs like Every Breath Counts and, and various other ones who have been highlighting the need for access to oxygen for a while now. So it felt like that there was, yeah, a real opportunity. Thank you so much for um, for giving us the background. And to talk a little bit more about how this could be used on the ground in low resource settings, I'm going to be talking to Phil Bonnet. He's an anesthesiologist who works out of Sheffield in the UK. And he spent some time in Zambia, working in a hospital in Zambia. And this is also going to come up in the conversation I have with him about the need for medical equipment to work in low-resource settings, to not just exist in low-resource settings, but to be able to be repaired and to be able to be built locally and cheaply. And he's going to talk a little bit about how this sort of oxygen concentrator could be used in a rural hospital in a low-resource setting, and what he thinks about this idea. Phil, thank you so much for agreeing to join us on Open Energy Access. I'm going to start by just asking you to tell me a little bit about yourself. Who are you, where do you come from, and what do you do? Uh, thanks, Tamara. Great to chat to you. So, hi, I'm Phil Bonnet. I'm an ethicist, currently based in Sheffield. Uh, I did my medical training in Sheffield and then specialised in anaesthesia. I really love my job. I, I love the work at the hospital. I spend a lot of time on the maternity wards, uh, but also have an interest in working in the resource poor setting. Um, and I worked uh, for a couple of years in Zambia, main, doing a couple of things, working in a, a rural African hospital, which was kind of a typical African hospital where you you do your interest, but you end up doing a bit of everything. Um, and then also helping set up a, an anaesthetic uh, training programme within uh, Lusaka in the capital of Zambia. What does an anesthesiologist do? And how did you get from Sheffield to Zambia? Okay, so anaesthetists, as we say in the UK, or, or <laughs> anesthesiologists, uh, are involved in lots of different forms of, of hospital medicine. Some people put it like we're like the, the GPs of the hospital. In the first instance, yes, we, we manage people and look after people when they're having operations. So whether that's giving them a, a general anaesthetic and putting them to sleep, um, also providing regional anaesthesia. So we inject local anaesthetics into various different nerves and areas to provide sort of numbing medicine. Um, but beyond the sort of theatre, we get involved in the critical care of patients and so looking after patients when they're sick. And that's on the wards, but also in the intensive care setting. Uh, anaesthetists also get involved in pain management. So patients, for whatever reason, have significant pain in the short term or in the long term. Um, we help either del deliver medication or or treatments for that, and they're probably the sort of the three main roles. We also look at after women on the labour ward, providing analgesia and then anaesthesia if needed if they need any interventions when they're having babies. When you started your medical career, did you start in Sheffield and then move to Zambia, or did you start in Zambia and then move back to Sheffield? Uh, well, I've always had an interest in working in overseas. When I was at school, I spent some time uh, working with a charity which delivered aid and, and healthcare within Uganda, and that really sort of meeting people within that setting really inspired me that I wanted to do something uh, overseas. And then, yeah, I did my training in Sheffield, and during that time, I still had that interest of, of working overseas, and, and so did my wife Tess. So during our training, we took a couple 
couple of years out. Um, and we we're looking a lot, to, as you do when you think about kind of getting involved with projects, looking at lots of different projects that we could potentially get involved with. And that actually, as it always is, it was a, a friend who put us in contact with a medical director in a remote rural hospital in Zambia, which is on the border of Angola and Congo. He he was there with an, another couple of doctors, but it was a busy hospital and they were keen to come and have some extra help. So yeah, it was that point we volunteered and, and went uh, went to work in Zambia. Um, it was a great couple of years. It was really challenging. There's, there's always more need than you have than capacity to be able to deliver the the service that you really want to. But we were able to develop some things and help and. And then also, as I said, was involved in sort of teaching and training in Lusaka, which is a which is an ongoing anaesthetic program, which has had lots of input from from many people and, and is 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 really thriving at the moment. Can you describe what the clinic was like in Zambia? Did you have access to electricity, and what were some of the challenges that you faced there? Quite a reasonably sized sort of clinic and hospital had about about 220 inpatient beds sort of divided between maternity pediatrics and then a male and female ward the medical director was a, a general surgeon from New Zealand fortunately um, we had a really good um, electricity supply even though being rural so one of the other doctors who worked there intermittently was an orthopedic surgeon from from Sunderland a guy called Peter Gill and he fundraised and with a group of people and set up a, a hydroelectric power plant uh, which supplied the hospital and the surrounding area because without that well we were beyond the uh, government's grid but also the, the government's grid sort of was was relatively unreliable so actually that was a real uh, fortunate thing that we had a good electricity supply so that meant things like theatres could run we could run our x-ray machine quite reliably uh, the labs could run uh, effectively as well and um, the challenges for me, at times, it's, uh, it's the number of doctors. At times, there were sort of three doctors. So you would do like a, a one in 24 hours. So you'd work 24 hours and then sort of uh, quite frequently within sort of every three days. So And during that night, you would mainly sort of be delivering obstetric care to the maternity unit um, and then plus anything else. which So it was quite easy for the resources to be sort of medically wise to be be consumed also limit on drug supplies we would often be running out of stuff and you know that a patient really needed a, a certain type of drug but it wasn't always available and um, they, they were sort of some of the, the frustrations and also I guess as we'll come on to um, we had no uh, easy supply of oxygen so we were by road about six hours to the nearest sort of larger town which probably wouldn't have oxygen so the only way that we could um, deliver oxygen to our patients would be through oxygen concentrators as a hospital which actually had a relatively good uh, external financial support so we were able to purchase a, a number of oxygen concentrations I think initially we had about four and then later on we had about seven but there were still times when you wouldn't have enough oxygen for your patients so you'd be using all your oxygen concentrators and another patient would be come in and needing some oxygen and and you'd have to decide how you're going to um, sort of manage the resource really which it's something we don't have to do in the UK. What happens when there isn't enough oxygen for patients or what happens when you don't have enough oxygen concentrators? If What does that look like when there isn't enough? If there isn't enough, there's a couple of options. You can either sort of use one oxygen concentrator for two patients. So sometimes if the oxygen was being used on neonates and the, the little newborn babies, they often only need a couple of litres. So not one oxygen concentrator would provide about five litres of oxygen. So you could split it between the two of them. So one, so that was one way you could cope. Another way you could look at who needed it most. 
So, for example, after an operation, when you're a little bit sleepy, to, on, to be, for safest practice, you need to give them oxygen at least overnight as kind of relatively routine practice. So you might decide, well, actually, we'll risk it for them. That the, Take the oxygen off them. We'll see what their saturations are. OK, they're OK. OK, we'll use this oxygen and concentrator for another patient. So you kind of just have to sort of share the resource around, really. Uh, but it would be nice not to be in that situation. Yeah, I can definitely see where that could get scary. And it actually leads me to what we're facing right now, which is the COVID-19 pandemic. And when COVID-19 really became the, the pandemic that we know it is now, and it started to spread globally and spread around Africa, what was the first thing that you thought of as a doctor who has worked in Zambia? Um, what was going through your mind, especially when we're talking about oxygen supplies, which we're hearing about all over the world as something being in short supply? When you were thinking about Zambia, what was going through your mind? Well, I think the sort of the first real impact of COVID um, that I started really thinking about was when um, the cases were really escalating within Italy. The Italian healthcare, another well-set-up healthcare system, was struggling on the intensive care units to manage to to ventilate all the patients, have enough ventilators and and, and enough oxygen to that effect uh, to to meet the demand. And uh, knowing that e- even in normal times, that, that within sort of Africa, within the rural setting, that there isn't enough resources. You then add COVID into that situation where patients are going to need in the first instance, are going to need um, an oxygen supply and then um, potentially need ventilation. And there's just that resource is not within the majority uh, of Africa. Uh, and looking at some of the research papers, the data is a, a little bit variable, but they, they report somewhere between sort of 30 and 40 percent of rural African hospitals have access to oxygen. So there's going to be a lot of patients who are just not going to have access to oxygen. When you were working in Zambia, and let's say the pandemic had hit while you were there, mm. yeah. would you have been able to get more oxygen concentrators? And could you have done it quickly? I, I know that you mentioned that you were able to have a few, but would you have been able to put your hands on more in, in a very short amount of time while you were there? Uh, so financially, yes, we could afford it to purchase more oxygen concentrators. Pos, I don't think there was any really readily available within Zambia. So what we would we would have purchased them from the probably from the UK and then shipped them uh, across on a, on a container. So to get them to us and through customs is probably at best three months, but probably near a, a six month process. So no, we would we would have struggled to rapidly. And been able to obtain uh, uh, oxygen concentrators. And so the idea of the oxygen concentrator that we want to design, or we want to help design and build and manufacture, the idea has always been to open source this and open source it for people who are in low resource settings, who can then build it, manufacture it, repair it and do everything there, everything locally. So knowing what you know about working in Zambia, do you think that today there does exist the possibility of building this sort of thing locally? Do you think that the skills exist on the ground? Are you a little bit skeptical of our idea or do you think that it's possible? So when I first started talking to Joel about the the concept of the open access, so too, I just thought it was amazing really it was incredible it's, it's such the way to it's such the right way to go if you're going to have a piece of equipment which is uh, life-saving it needs to be 
uh, cheap because there's a lot of hospitals within Africa which just don't have that access. So to be able to scale this up and make it affordable is crucial. Manufacturing it and repairing within country is is such a great idea. I think there'll be challenges along the way of being able to be able to deliver that. But I think long term, in in terms of sustainability, it's such the right way to go. I mean, one example, I, we got a new oxygen concentrated delivered to us. It was quite a high spec model. It delivered kind of sort of high flow of oxygen up to about 10 litres. And it was it was a really great resource. But within a, a couple of weeks, I think we probably had some within the electricity, there was a bit of an electrical surge. One of the main circuit boards blew up, I took a photo of the circuit board, emailed the company who made it and said oh yeah you need a new circuit board we'll send one out to you and that circuit board never arrived i suspect it probably got stuck somewhere maybe in customs or somewhere along route so and then that that oxygen concentrator which had cost near enough two thousand pounds was then obsolete and actually if you go round lots of rural african hospitals they all they'll all have what people refer to as a, a medical graveyard so you you go into a medical equipment graveyard so you go into the hospital there'll be a room and there'll be a whole load of equipment and none of it will work and mainly it's stuff which has been donated some of it bought because it's it's broken and then it's not repairable and they can't get the parts so i think if you're having a bit of kit which is repairable in country which is made in country is is such the right way to go so if there are more oxygen concentrators on the ground, especially the sorts that could be built and repaired locally and and people were able to get there, especially doctors were able to, doctors and hospitals were able to get their hands on them more quickly. Is an oxygen concentrator the type of thing that would save lives? I think it definitely saved lives. Um, in terms of COVID, the, I mean, it's, it's the oxygen there, they become sicker with the, the infection um, if it begins to affect the lungs, the oxygen levels drop within the blood. And in the first instance, the, the sort of the treatment that is to provide sort of simple, straightforward oxygen through the concentrator. Um, and yes, it will help with their recovery. But the main thing is going to save lives. And outside of COVID, there's there's a whole within a hospital. Oxygen is used after an operation, uh, for newborn babies, for patients with malaria or, or, or general infections or or people who've had significant trauma. Yeah, so, so there's lots of different situations where, where oxygen is needed to save lives. What sort of skills does someone need to administer an oxygen concentrator, if I'm using the right word? Because we don't want to create the kind of situation where now we have more of the equipment that can save lives, but we don't have the personnel who know how to administer it. Could you speak to that? So in terms of uh, delivering oxygen from oxygen concentrator, it's actually quite simple. It's a, a case of turning it on, selecting your oxygen flow, connecting some tubing, either probably to what we call a nasal cannula, which is a couple of prongs which sit in the nose, or a simple face mask. So it's actually very simple uh, for healthcare providers to to deliver. And, and most healthcare providers will have some experience of delivering oxygen to patients, uh, whether that was from their training or maybe what they worked previously. So it could easily, uh, easily be distributed without uh, too much impact on the healthcare resource setting. That's really good to hear, to know that it'll be able to be used rather easily. Phil, thank you so much for consulting with us as we go through this this process. Um, for me, the only other question I think I have is what is the importance of 
energy access in in using an oxygen concentrator. You mentioned at your hospital in Zambia that fortunately that wasn't Mm -hmm. a problem. Would this sort of device be able to be used if a hospital has zero access to energy or perhaps very infrequent or unreliable access to energy? Energy is always a a challenge in in the rural setting within Africa and actually within the the cities as well. Uh, I know it's something I've discussed with Joel that they are looking at sort of solutions to this problem. One is kind of using a sort of a solar rechargeable sort of battery pack to supply the concentrator. There are some other solutions, particularly with intimate, whether you, you make your oxygen and then store it within a tank um, to then deliver it at, when it's needed. So when you have power, you you make your oxygen, as it were, and then deliver it later. But that has issues of needing further sort of being able to sort of pressurise the oxygen. Yeah, without without a reliable power source, it is challenging. But I, I know Joel and his team are kind of looking at potential solutions to that. Do you think that solar power would work or do you feel like that's not reliable enough what, what what's kind of your first impression when you think about when you think about that idea i think it's a potential solution if they could use sort of uh, solar rechargeable batteries i think one of the nice things about their solution for the oxygen concentrator is it's going to be quite a low powered compressor because that's one of the issues with uh, sort of a traditional oxygen concentrator is they use quite high powered compressors deliver the pressure to be able to get the flow through the uh, the uh, the tubes which absorb the nitrogen to deliver the oxygen um, but the solution that they're looking at it uses is quite a, a low powered uh, motor i think it's uh, potentially a motor from a car windscreen washer that would in effect draw a lot less energy and would be more suited to kind of that sort of solar power battery sort of lower sort of energy level setup. And that's the kind of thing that I guess could be easily found in a low resource setting and easily repaired and built. And yeah, so taking all of those things into consideration is really important in coming up with this design that we're working on. So thank you so much for for your time and for consulting with us, for helping us through with this process. Like I said already, it's a different sort of project for NXS than we've done in the past, and it couldn't be done without the help of the community that's really contributing to this project. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I'm sure we'll be in touch more and more as the project goes on. And thank you again so much for being involved. It's a pleasure. Really enjoying it. Thanks. And thanks to you out there for listening. You can learn more about the types of open source projects that we fund by visiting nxs.org, which is E-N-A-C-C-E-S-S dot org. And you can subscribe to Open Energy Access wherever you listen to podcasts. We welcome any comments or feedback on the topics we discussed here. If you would like to contribute in some way to the OpenO2 project, we would love to hear from you. Uh, You can reach us by email, that's info at nxs.org, or find us on Twitter or LinkedIn by searching for the NXS Foundation. We'll be back in your feeds again soon. Thank you for listening and see you next time.